O'Connor mentioned that it was National Donut Day on Friday. I'm unmuted here. Am I good? All right. And I forgot about that early in the morning, but it was around 11.30 when Dean came in and said, Dad, it's National Donut Day. I said, I know that. Why haven't you gone to get donuts? And so he's like, well, I need money. So we gave him some money. I said, look, go down to Uncle Dude's downtown, get a half dozen donuts. So he and his girlfriend, Rose, they, they ride down, they drive down there, they get there, and he calls up, he's like, Dad, the line's around the corner. I said, and what do you want me to do about that? He's like, well, I don't want to wait in that. And I said, then don't wait. And Fifteen minutes later, he calls back. We've been waiting in line for 15 minutes. They just informed us they sold out. We never got any. So yesterday we were down in Avalon visiting some friends. So without Dean, Tammy and I went to Duck Donuts and got some donuts in memory of National Donut Day. Have you ever noticed that words tend to change over time? The definitions of words morph over time. Have you noticed that? So, so one, of the, one of the words that always comes to my mind when I think of the way words change and morph is the word uh, koinonia. It means fellowship uh, in the Greek. And it, it's something that the early church talked about needing to do and it's explained in the book of Acts. Um, but my understanding of church history, which is not the greatest all the time, but my understanding is that the church used the word community for a long time. And then after a while, the word community kind of started to morph and change. And it became associated with, well, I live in such and such community. Or um, this is a community gathering. And so the church started to realize, okay, well, that word's become watered down now, the word coin in the, our community. So we're going to flip to the word fellowship. We're going to do fellowship just to differentiate what's going on. And, and so they did that. And over time, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you'll know that fellowship became kind of synonymous with eating. Right? Every church about our age or, or you know, building this age has a fellowship hall. And what was fellowship hall used for? To fellowship. We would have meals there. And so fellowship kind of became associated with eating or hanging out and just being polite to each other. And so about 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 now, I don't know, losing count, the church started to realize that again. So they flipped back to the word community, trying to help us understand that it's, it's something deeper. And so words just tend to change and they morph sometimes. But this morning, I, I really want us to look at the word follow. The word follow. It's another one of those words that I think culture has morphed the meaning of over time. The Greek word used over and over again as Jesus speaks to people and says, come follow me, is the word akolutheo. Akolutheo. And it means to follow, obviously. Follow one who precedes. Join him as his attendant. Accompany him. To join one as a disciple. To become or be his disciple. To side with his party. To cleave steadfastly to one. Conform wholly to his example in living and, if need be, in dying also. 
But in the world that we find ourselves living in, we, we've kind of changed the meaning of that word, I think. It's been, it's been watered down. And let me explain what I mean. So several weeks ago when the men's ministry had their kickoff event, we were building cornhole sets and barbecuing over George Dean's house. I had the privilege of spending some time talking to and getting to know Jan. Now, if you don't know Jan and his wife, Sylvie, they've been worshiping with us here for several months now. And as I talked to Jan, I learned that he's here for a short time from France and part of the French Navy, and he's working at Lakehurst Naval Base. And I mentioned that, that one of the places on my bucket list to go to someday is France. And you say, why do you want to go to France? Well, I want to go watch and experience the Tour de France. Now, if you don't know what the Tour de France is, it is a 21-day, 2,000-plus-mile bike race. So if you're not mathematically inclined, let me do the math for you. That's over 100 miles a day racing on a bike through the mountains with like two or three days off in between. And I love cycling. And every July, you'll find me, much to my family's chagrin, sitting in front of the television for hours watching whatever they'll televise of the Tour de France on TV. Because I just absolutely love it. And so, as Jan and I were talking, I said, yeah, someday I'd really like to go there and visit and see the race. Then he proceeded to tell me that his cousin raced bikes professionally in France. And I could follow him on Instagram. And so I did that. Eugene, there should be a, yeah, there you go. You probably can't see it real well, but, but there he is. I follow him on Instagram. I think that's kind of cool. But when we start to think about the word follow, the difference between what I'm doing with Jan's cousin, who's a professional bike racer, and I think what Jesus was referring to are two totally different things. Right? In our world today, we look at the word follow and it's, okay, yeah, I have an interest in that person. Um, this is a celebrity that, that I, I'd like to know more about. And I'll follow them for a while or I can disengage, I can ignore and click a button and unfollow. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And so this morning, what I want us to do is, is I want to walk through the Gospels and see what Jesus says about following and what that means for us today. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll jump further into it. Father God, we thank you that we can gather together in this place this morning. You are so good to us. You woke us up this morning, you opened our eyes, you gave us breath to breathe, you gave us the strength to get out of bed to put clothing on and to get here that we might be able to corporately worship you and to study your word. We don't take that for granted. We thank you for that. And Father, in these next minutes, we ask that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts helping us to understand what your son Jesus says to us about what it means to follow. Father, we pray that you would speak firmly and authoritatively through your word this morning. 
And that if anything comes out of my lips that is not centered on your word and what you're telling us, that we would ignore it. For we want to hear from you and we want to know what you're telling us this morning. And so we pray to that end in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So context is always helpful in helping us to understand something better. And so in this case, we've just taken a moment or two and looked at the Greek word for follow that Jesus uses constantly throughout the Gospels. But I think to gain a better perspective, it would help us to see some of the historical context as well. When Jesus says follow, what is the historical context of what he's doing? The time in which he's living. See, my understanding is I've heard several people speak about it and a little bit that I've read, is that if we were to look back at the Jewish educational system, we'll see some of this context. It'll help things make a little bit more sense. See, most Jewish children uh, would go to school at around the age of five or six, like, like here in the United States, um, but they would go to do really primarily one thing, not learn English, writing, and arithmetic, although I'm not sure they teach that in school anymore. Um, they went to learn the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And over the next several years, the class would last till they were about 10. Over those four or five years, they would do nothing but dedicate themselves to memorizing the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized word for word. Now, needless to say, a lot of kids didn't make it past that. Right? They, they couldn't cut it. They, they weren't able to do all of that. And so at the end of that first level of education, if they, they weren't cutting it, uh, the rabbi who would be teaching them in the local synagogue would say, we know you love God, but go back home, learn your family trade, learn the family business, do, learn to manage your household. But the best of them, the ones who really kind of made the grade, they went on to the next level. And in the next level of teaching, they would not just have the Torah now down, but they would memorize word for word the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So that by the time they were 14 or 15, they would have memorized Genesis through Malachi. Word for word. It's funny, I was talking with some friends yesterday, telling them what I was talking about today, and I said, I'm going to have the hardest time saying Malachi. Because for so many years as a youth pastor, I always called him Malachi, the Italian prophet. And if you heard me, I paused before I said Malachi because I had to get it right in my head. Um, But that's what these guys would do. They would memorize the entire Hebrew scriptures. Now, a lot of them didn't make the grade. Right? And so, again, at the age of 14 or 15, if they, if they didn't cut it, the rabbi would say, we know you love God, but it's time to go back home and learn the family trade or the family business. But the very best of the best, the ones who were able to memorize all of it, they would continue into the next level. And this level, as determined by the rabbis, they, they would 
they would really dive into what it meant to be a rabbi. To understand everything the rabbi knew and did. And so the student would have to go to the rabbi and, say, and apply. He'd say, Rabbi, I'd like to become one of your disciples. And the rabbi would grill him to no end. He would grill him on the Torah. He would grill him on the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. He would grill him on the traditions. And if the rabbi thought that this kid, again, at the age of 14 or 15, really had what it took to be just like him, he would say, come, follow me. And at that point, the kid would leave home. He would leave his family. He would leave and abandon whatever was supposed to be the family trade. And he would walk after his rabbi, trying to not only know what the rabbi knows, but become who the rabbi was. And that's the scene that we find Jesus entering into. Jesus is about 30 years old when most rabbis would begin their teaching ministry. Jesus is beginning his. And Jesus walks into town. This new rabbi walks into town and people don't really know him. And he just starts calling people to come follow him and be his disciple. So that's a historical context that helps us to understand a little bit more about what we're going to look at as we look at the scriptures. So let's spend some time. We're going to dive through a new number of passages in the Gospels. We decided to kind of bundle them all together because it's part of what Jesus means when he says, follow me. So let's look first at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Matthew 4, 18 to 22, says, As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here we go, right? Jesus, this new rabbi, has walked into town, and he begins his teaching ministry, and as he walks into town, he sees Simon and Andrew, these two young men over here fishing. Now, if they were fishing... It's because they weren't another rabbi's disciple. And if they weren't another rabbi's disciples, it's because they never made the grade. They weren't the best of the best. They were sent home like most of them to just do the family business, to learn the trade. And their trade was fishing. But Jesus shows up and he says to those who are already cut from the team, come, follow me. Come, follow me. I'm going to make you fish for men. Because I think that you can do what I can do. Then he comes up to James and John who are, who are fishing with dad, who are, who are in the boat with, with Zebedee. And the same deal. 
Right? These are young men. 15, maybe 17, maybe in their early 20s. And Jesus calls them and he says, look, I know you didn't make the grade before, but I think you can be just like me. Come, follow me. And all four of these young men, they jump and they follow Jesus. We read that Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets. James and John immediately leave their father in the boat, still fishing. I mean, I don't know what was going through Zebedee's mind. I mean, there's part of him probably incredibly proud because my sons didn't make it, but here's this new rabbi inviting them to be one of him. That's pretty cool. On the other hand, Zebedee's saying there, all right, now what am I supposed to do? Right? These guys jump and they follow Jesus. They abandon a lot of stuff, right? In this call, you recognize, as Jesus calls them, what these guys gave up. They left their occupation or livelihood. If this gig with Jesus doesn't work out, I'm going to be wandering around and I've left the family business. How how are we going to support ourselves? How's this going to work? We've left our livelihood. We've left our occupation. Jesus calls them to leave their family. They leave dad in the boat and they immediately start following Jesus. And he calls them to leave security. Because there's security in knowing that you're part of a family business. There's security knowing that you're with your family. And Jesus is asking them to abandon all of that as they go and follow him. Let's flip over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 to 60. We read, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, excuse me, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he, Jesus, told him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So as we see this scene unfold, someone, and Matthew identifies this someone as a scribe, says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus' reply, if you're going to follow me, understand that you're no longer going to have a home. It's just not going to be there. Foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We're going to be sojourners, travelers. We're going to abandon that. The comfort, security of home are going to be forfeited. Then Jesus calls another person to follow him. That person's response is that he is willing 
but first wants to go bury his father. Now that seems like a reasonable request. But then Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. I've got to tell you that there are some things that Jesus says that sometimes I just, I just scratch my head. Like this seems like a really, really harsh reply. And a lot of commentators have a lot of different things to say about Jesus' words here. Many of them in an attempt to, to take and take the edge off of what Jesus is saying. Like, because Jesus couldn't possibly have been that hard-hearted. You know, as one commentator explains the Jewish traditions, he says it becomes apparent that even if the man's father had just passed, like, say, that morning, this man would have been asking for as much as a year's delay in following Jesus by the time the entire burial process would be completed. I don't know whether the guy's dad had just passed, whether he was waiting in anticipation that someday his father would die and wanted to wait until then. But what is crystal clear is that Jesus was calling this person to understand that following him had to be a significantly higher priority than anything else. A higher priority than family, a higher priority than other responsibilities that one might have. The third person offers to follow Jesus, but first wants to go say goodbye to his family. Jesus' reply, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' point here is that following him, real discipleship, requires commitment, and requires focus. Because looking back distracts one from moving ahead in a straight line. I I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this. It happens to me all the time because maybe it's just me and I'm bad at this. But um, if I'm riding a bike and I look back over my shoulder to see what's going on with traffic, I usually am not where I thought I was going to be. You see the same if you're driving and you look back over your shoulder for too long, you'll find that you tend to veer in the direction that you're looking. And so when we take our eyes off of what's in front of us and we start to look backwards, we really have no way of being able to stay on track going straight forward. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, look, disciples cannot back off from the task. You need to keep plowing forward. You need to keep your eyes straight ahead. Discipleship is not a second job. It is not moonlighting. It's not a task that we do on the side. It's it's not an ice cream social or a hobby. It is the product of God's calling in our lives and should be pursued with appropriate seriousness. You fix your eyes and you go forfeiting everything else. So as Jesus calls these individuals to follow him, he calls them to abandon comfort knowing where their home is, to prioritize following him even over family and other duties, and he calls them to a commitment and a focus that has laser point accuracy, putting blinders on and moving forward only. Flip back to Matthew and his gospel in chapter 16. Matthew 16.
15, verses 21 to 28, we read this. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and be raised for the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone? If he gains the whole world, yet you loses his life. Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what I find interesting is that most of our Bibles place a separation uh, between the thought the thoughts of verses 23 and 24, making verses 24 to 28 uh, a separate section. You'll probably see it in your Bible as something like take up your cross or something like that. But I think verses 24 to 28 are better seen and, and, and work better as a continuation of the previous verses. See, we see that in a simple word, then. Jesus says one thing and then continues with the next words. I don't think there's a separation of thought there. And I think this is significant in that Jesus' words, excuse me, Jesus' words about what it takes to follow him fall right on the heels of his rebuke of Peter. See, Peter was thinking, as, as maybe as a normal person, he was thinking with an earthly mind. And Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him to think otherworldly. Calling him to not be concerned with the things of this world, but to be concerned with the things of God. To change his mind. See, we're not supposed to be thinking like normal people. When we're following Jesus, we're to be thinking with new minds that are focused and centered on God's concerns and not mankind's concerns. We need to hear that as a church today in the culture in which we live. Our minds need to be focused on God's concerns and on the things that God thinks and not to be consumed with centering our minds on earthly things and the things that the culture is telling us we should be consumed with. We're to be concerned about that which God is concerned with. And then following this rebuke, soon as Jesus says this to Peter, he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? 
And this is exactly what it reads like. Jesus is saying that to follow him requires complete self-denial. We're abandoning everything. We deny ourselves. And we prepare. We prepare to die. Now that's not how we often think about taking up our crosses, is it? We think that that difficult person in our family or the difficult person in the office, they're our cross to bear. We think about the physical ailment we have or the difficulty in life, the trials that we have, that, that's my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. The cross was an instrument of execution. He was calling the cross a cross. And the cross he carried to his very own execution is the same cross he's calling us to carry if we're going to follow him. We need to be prepared to die on it, both figuratively and if he calls us to, literally. Because Jesus expects his followers to follow him to death. Now it's recorded that Garibaldi, in the midst of his revolution, cried out this. He said, he that loves Italy, let him follow me. I promise him hardship, suffering, death. But he that loves Italy, let him follow me. Now that's not the type of locker room pep talk that you want from your coach. And yet, that's what Jesus is calling us to. See, too many, Western, too many Western Christians preach and believe that, that we should expect some kind of unlimited prosperity if we follow Jesus. That we follow Jesus and everything becomes a rose garden. Uh, that we should expect health. That, that we should expect to escape all kinds of significant hardship, difficulty, and tribulation. That we should expect and accept nothing other than Jesus' blessings in our life. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him. He says that his followers are going to face and should expect rejection and death. That we should expect and accept the same rejection of the world for turning to Jesus and following him. The same rejection that he faced. Discipleship involves a death that in so many ways is like a crucifixion. Even if we don't have the privilege of dying for him on a cross. So let's review what we've seen so far in Jesus' call to his followers. He's called them to leave occupation or livelihood. He's called them to leave family, to leave security, to abandon comfort, to prioritize following him, even over family and other responsibilities. He's called them to commitment and focus. And here he called them to think otherworldly, to be focused and centered on God's concerns and not man's, to complete self-denial, to hardship, difficulty, tribulation, to rejection and death. 
Now one more passage. Flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30, we read this. Just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell all your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you, so what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, because of my name, will receive a hundred times more, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Go sell your belongings, and give all the proceeds to the poor. Okay, that's a tall order. So tall that the young man who approached Jesus walks away grieving because he had a lot and he wasn't willing to give it all up. So Jesus couldn't have really meant all of that, right? He couldn't have meant I really want you to sell all your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. This young guy who's filthy rich is eager to join up and go on the journey with Jesus and Jesus tells him to go sell everything. This is the guy you want in your church or in your movement. But no, Jesus says, nope, go get rid of all of it. Then come follow me. What's Jesus thinking? What is going through his mind? One author puts it this way. He says, Jesus had committed the classic blunder of letting the big fish get away. This guy could have funded the entire movement. But Jesus tells him to go. If you're not going to sell everything, then you don't have any place with me. So what's Jesus thinking here? 
Because, let's face it, it seems crazy. All these passages that we're looking at, Jesus just seems a little... Excuse me, these allergies are not going to stop. Jesus just seems a little off his rocker. You would think that you would want to gather people to you to, to begin a movement. And instead, he just seems to make, raise the bar so high that almost nobody can get there, it seems. If we take Jesus at his word, which I think we ought to do, and if we take these words of Jesus in the context of the rest of what he's said, and we've looked at so far, it's difficult to conclude that Jesus really means anything other than what he literally says here, as difficult as that is for us to process in here. Leave occupation or livelihood, leave family, leave security, abandon comfort, prioritize following him, even over family and other responsibilities, commitment and focus, thinking otherworldly, being concerned about God's concerns, not man's, being com- living complete self-denial, or completely deny self, that's probably the better way to say that, um, expect hardship, difficulty, tribulation, rejection, and death, sell everything we have to give the money to the poor. Maybe he'll clarify this in another passage and, and kind of bring all this together. So, so flip over to Luke chapter 14. Maybe all this crazy talk is somehow, somehow kind of mellowed out as we get into Luke chapter 14 and we understand that Jesus doesn't really mean this. Now great crowds, Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who, who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So we start out this passage by noticing that Jesus isn't just talking to the twelve. He's talking to a, a large group of people. There's a great crowd traveling with him. And Jesus turns to all of them and he says, If anyone's coming to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me 
cannot be my disciple. I mean, who says stuff like this when you're trying to start a movement? Isn't the end goal to have a great following so that you can influence them? Wouldn't it have been made more sense for Jesus to kind of be very inclusive so that he might be able to share truth with them? It's not what he does. If you're going to come to me, follow me, well, you can't unless you hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Come on, Jesus. This is getting beyond crazy. Now you're telling me I have to hate my family. So I thought maybe we translate that word a little bit too strongly. Now, it, now it's in the original language. It means hate, hatred, detest. So what does Jesus mean? We're supposed to hate our family if we're going to follow him. Because other places in scripture, we're told to love our family and take care of them. I think the point here is that we can have no other relationship that is first other than Jesus. And our family, our wives, our husbands, our brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, they all take a back seat in relationship to our relationship with Jesus. Hate, as it's used here, suggests a priority of relationship. It is Jesus first, always first, and nobody else. And to follow Jesus means to follow Jesus, and not anyone else. Not anything else. Jesus has to be our first priority. Over our mother and father, our spouse and our kids, over our brothers and sisters. Then Jesus says that we have to hate our own lives. Because it's not about us. It's not about our wants and our desires. It's not about the things that we want, how we want them. It's not about our schedules, about our priorities. It is always all about Jesus. And if it's not, then we're really not following him. It's all about Jesus to the point that we treasure him so much that we're willing to sacrifice our lives. And then we bear our cross, prepared to die, figuratively. And if God calls us to literally. We say, well, that can't really be true. But listen, there are brothers and sisters all around the world every day bearing their own crosses as they lay down their literal lives and die for the cause of Christ to advance the gospel and to stand for his glory. And he may call me to that he may call you to that we don't know but we need to be ready and prepared Jesus continues painting this picture for this large crowd and talks about building a tower and first sitting down and calculating the cost or going to war as a king and first considering the cost and whether or not you could beat him 
In other words, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, shouldn't you count and consider the cost first? Builders plan and calculate. Kings sit down before going to war and they work out a war plan. In the same way, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to count the cost. You've got to consider what, it's, what he's saying and you need to consider it well. He then concludes his statement saying, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who, cannot, who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Again, restating what was stated in Luke 14 to the rich young ruler. To be his disciple requires us to renounce all of our possessions. So our priority is to be Jesus over family, to be Jesus over ourselves, to, to be ready to, to bear our cross in preparation to die and to allow Jesus to be over all of our possessions. It's a call to consider the cost carefully before committing to and following him. So what does it mean to follow? When Jesus says, follow me, does it look like our modern day definition of following? Leaving occupation or livelihood. That doesn't mean that Jesus is calling all of us to go out and quit our jobs tomorrow morning. But what he is calling us to is to recognize that he may call us to quit our jobs tomorrow morning to do something else for his glory. Certainly, he's calling us to to view our jobs and our livelihood different. If you bake bread, you're no longer baking bread to just feed people. You're baking bread for the glory of God, and you use your baking as a platform to advance the gospel. If you work on cars, if you dig ditches, if you work in a hospital, it is you're there. You need to switch your mind and understand that your livelihood, your occupation does not exist to put a paycheck in your wallet. It exists so that we might advance the gospel and bring God glory in the position using the skills that he's given to us. We need to abandon our occupations and livelihood in the way that we think about them so that we might view them the way God wants us to. Leave family. And he may call us to do that. To leave security. The things that, that bring that security. We all want security. We are creatures that, that desire security. And Jesus is saying, no. If you're going to follow me, there are going to be insecure moments. You're not going to know where we're going and what you're going to do next. He calls us to abandon comfort. Again, one of those things that we all desire, we all like comfort. But we need to be willing to abandon it. To prioritize following him, even over family and other duties. To to commit, to focus, to think otherworldly and be focused and centered on God's concerns, not man's. Complete denial of self. Hardship, difficulty, tribulation, to be ready for rejection and death. To be ready to sell everything we have and give the money to the poor. To place him above all other family, to bear our own cross, to consider the cost and renounce all of our possessions.
I ask again, does this sound like our modern day definition of following? More importantly, does it sound like what the, or look like the American church? So Jesus calls us to a radical devotion. And it's not always comfortable and it's not always easy. He calls us to follow as the disciple would follow a rabbi. A devotion to thinking like and being like and acting like Jesus above everything else. Unfortunately, far too often we find the Western church settling for a Christianity that revolves around ourselves when the central message of Christianity is really about abandoning ourselves. David Platt, who is the pastor of McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., and the author of the book Radical, he says this. I want you to listen to this carefully. He says, and this is where we need to pause. Because we're starting to redefine Christianity. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we're more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give everything away we have. Everything we have away. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you and I realize what we're doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He is beginning to look a lot like us because, after all, That's whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. So Jesus' call was and is a call to complete abandonment of ourselves. It's a call to abandon certainty for uncertainty, safety for danger, comfort for what's uncomfortable, self-preservation for self-denunciation. It's a call to, to, to abandon storing up for letting go. It's a call to abandon acceptance for rejection. We do have to be willing and ready to abandon all of it. Again, in the same book, David Platt refers to a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the midst of Nazi Germany rule, penned one of the greatest Christian books of the 20th century called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he wrote that the first call every Christian experiences is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. The theme of the book is summarized in one potent sentence. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
Consider the cost. Is it high? Yes. Will it cost us? It most certainly will. Is it worth it? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. So it sounds like Jesus is saying that finding and following him is worth it. It's priceless. It's worth abandoning everything. Why? Because in Jesus, we found something that is worth losing everything else for. To quote, For when we abandon the trinkets of this world and respond to the radical invitation of Jesus, we discover the infinite treasure of knowing and experiencing him. Let me just pause. One of the reasons why people don't want to know about Jesus, one of the reasons why they're not interested in a relationship with Jesus, one of the reasons why the church in America is so so impotent is because we have not understood what it really means to abandon the trinkets of this world and what it really means to follow Jesus. Quote goes on to say, this brings us to the crucial question for every professing or potential follower of Jesus. Do we really believe he is worth abandoning everything for? Do you and I really believe that Jesus is so good, so satisfying, and so rewarding that we will leave all we have and all we own and all we are in order to find our fullness in him? Do you and I believe him enough to obey him and to follow him wherever he leads? Even when the crowds in our culture and maybe in our churches turn the other way, Will you accept Jesus' invitation to follow him? Not sure if you can do it? You can't. I can't. Not on our own strength. Not with what we've got. Because we are by nature selfish, self-centered people. But when we accept Jesus' invitation to follow him, and we yield to him in our weakness and ask him to cause us to be able to follow him, then the Holy Spirit comes and shows us how. He empowers us and he guides us. So the invitations in front of each of us, the call from Jesus to follow me, lies before each of us. Will we accept the call? Or will we settle for a religion? An American version of Christianity that makes us feel good about ourselves, but is void the power, is void the purpose and worth that comes from following the risen Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I wish that your invitation to follow was a little easier, that it didn't cost so much sometimes. 
I think about it. Thank you. As we look at communion, and if you don't have a communion element, kind of wave your hand.